You're listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hosted by Rev Yearwood, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and me, Antonique Smith. Each week, we host important conversations with innovators, policymakers, cultural influencers, and movement leaders who are leading the way to a 100% clean energy and just world. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. I am Mustafa Santiago Ali, Senior Vice President of the Hip Hop Caucus. Welcome to our radio show and podcast that delivers real talk on climate change and environmental justice. No sides, just the facts and stronger communities. And I'm Anthony Smith, the Grammy-nominated singer, actress, and artist, bringing some flavor to the climate change movement. I'm calling in from Los Angeles. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. And we also have an incredible, incredible, <laughs> incredible, let me say it three times Don't for everybody. Don't get too excited, people. <laughs> <laughs> we have a guest co-host. Break it down for him, Kristen. I am Kristen Mink. I'm a mom, an activist, uh, fighting to get out the vote and for climate. There it is. There it is. We just want to give a special thank you to WPFW for hosting us here in the studio and also some of our incredible supporters like the League of Conservation Voters. Big up to you and the Union of Concerned Scientists. And also a huge thank you to all of our listeners who tune in each and every week. We love y'all. You can check out the show's blog at think100.info. And be sure to follow us online at Think 100 Show. So, Kristen and Antonique, I have to say I am excited today. (laughs) (laughs) I am too. (laughs) There it is. We've got some incredible, incredible young leaders on the show today on our first episode. Mm -hmm. And on episode two of the show today, we're going to dive into our vote, how it connects to endangered species, and how together we can win. That is right, Kristen. Today we've got in the studio with us two of the founding members of the Youth Climate Work Group. It's the first of its kind, and it's inspiring youth-led, it's youth-led work group that has truly taken the climate change fight into their own hands and put the spotlight on, guess who, the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, <laughs> you know that's where we want to keep it. <laughs> As you know, I know a little about putting a spotlight on EPA. You guys remember when we had to boot Pruitt out of a restaurant and then out of yep. his office? <laughs> when he didn't want to do any of the right things. Uh, well, we may have to have a new campaign if the leadership at the EPA continues to be climate deniers. Right, and this fight is certainly not one that young people asked for or created. Mm -hmm. The climate fight is a problem inherited from older generations that have also failed to be active enough to combat it. Although we want to say that we know there are a number of brothers and sisters over the years who have been fighting diligently to make change happen. And that's part of what it makes these two of the work group members that we're going to talk about today so impressive. They have embraced the fight and are making the federal government accountable. Mm-hmm. And they, just like us, are fed up with the inaction of so many of our elected leaders. They bring us such a unique, valuable, and desperately needed perspective to the climate movement, and I can't wait to hear what they have to say today. I know that's, that's right. right. I know that's mm-hmm. right. And, and, you know, well, we're going to get right into that here in one one second, but, you know, as we always do, We have some shout outs that we want to, you know, we call it in the movement. And we want to make sure that there are a few things that have been happening that we just want to highlight for folks. So the first thing 
that we're going to highlight for our, the listeners today. And maybe you haven't noticed it, but if you have not, you need to go and check out what's been going on at the Environmental Protection Agency in relationship to someone by the name of Dr. Ruth Etzel. Now, Dr. Etzel is an incredible leader, a Ph.D. and an M.D. who has been focused on protecting the lives of children for decades. And she was uh, showing up to work at the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, they said, well, can I holler at you for a second? And they said, can I see your keys? And she said, well, yeah, of course you can see my keys. And then they said, can we see your ID? And, and, and she showed them that also. And then, unfortunately, and let me highlight for folks, she is an incredible, incredible uh, children's health protection leader. Uh, wow. They, they actually just pushed her right out the door. Now, uh, both Kristen and Antonique, we know that we have been watching over the last year and a half that at the Environmental Protection Agency, and it is no secret that they have been sort of, um, you know, working on trying to weaken science and policy. And, and by mm-hmm. removing Dr. Etzel, uh, who has been a huge champion on lead issues, on air pollution issues, and a number of others as they impact children. It's a part of their overall plan and being able to weaken science and policy at the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. But you know what, Kristen, I know that uh, Dr. Etzel is not the only one who's been in the news. And, and there's <laughs> no one better to talk about Judge Kavanaugh than you. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, and as you're talking about weakening the EPA, um, I don't know how many people know that uh, Judge Kavanaugh is actually a key part of that equation mm-hmm. as well. So, uh, you know, he's in the news a lot right now because turns out he spent much of his, uh, you know, young life, at least uh, assaulting women and getting blackout drunk All right now. <laughs> Right now, <laughs> um, but he has spent some of these more recent years on the D.C. courts, um, weakening and doing his best to weaken um, the regulatory powers of the EPA. So we've, we've been watching him for years run this cost-benefit analysis, and what he's weighing—that's so disturbing—is he's weighing the negative health impacts of EPA regulations against the benefit to companies in terms of the money that they're making of holding of of of, of uh, getting rid of those regulations. Mm. And, uh, you know, the reason that, that they want to bring him onto the court is because who do you think he's siding with? He's siding with the big businesses. He wants them to keep making the money. So, of course, what, we, what we're seeing, you know, who this is impacting is we've got a lot of especially low-income in- communities, mm-hmm. communities of color, um, and he's telling them, hey, I'm weighing your lives, your health, and that of your children against the money being made by these big businesses. And uh, he's going to be replacing potentially, uh, you know, a judge on the Supreme Court who was sometimes a, a swing vote with the liberals there for the EPA. And so this could be a huge and devastating change. Mm. All right. Yeah. All right. Kristen just gave y'all some real talk for you. <laughs> All right. Well, Anthony, let's turn it over to you because I know that you've been focusing a little bit on the black women's March that just happened this past weekend. Yes. This weekend was powerful. Some of the things that they were advocating at the March, they were there um, fighting for full reauthorization of the violence against women act that expired on September 30th. The Violence Against Women Act makes it possible to fund social services that support victims of sexual assault and domestic violence, such as law enforcement training and the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And it was enacted in 1994 following Anita Hill's testimony in 1991 against Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. It's mm-hmm. so timely with all of this that's happening right now with Kavanaugh and the Me Too movement and all of that. It's just kind of crazy that that expires. You know, yesterday, pretty much, or or Sunday. And, um, you know, one of the things that they were out there protesting was to get that reauthorized. Another thing was focusing on the 
intersectional women's rights concerns like poverty, affordable housing, reproductive rights, immigration protection, climate and center, the most the climate and center, the most vulnerable. And lastly, reversing the Trump administration's restrictions on the use of these words, transgender, fetus, mm. vulnerable, right. science-based, wow. science, believe this, banned words, evidence, evidence-based, diversity and entitlement. In 2017, December of 2017, the Trump administration told analysts at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention to no longer use those seven words in budget reports. It's just crazy, unbelievable, and reminds us of why voting in November is so important. Yes, 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 yes. Wow, without a doubt. There you go. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Anthony. That, that that almost makes it sound like back when the old uh, Soviet Union days when they I used know. the census. Seriously, I ain't trying to say nothing. Crazy. <laughs> All right, and, and you know we just got a couple other shout outs and in the movement that we want to highlight for folks. You know, here we also make sure that we are always uplifting uh, vulnerable communities and the impacts that continue to hit them, both on the environmental side, on the social justice side, the civil rights side, and also on the climate side. And you know. Uh, previous show, we talked about Hurricane Florence and the impacts that were happening, especially as the storm was going on. We had folks who called in who were there on the ground. We want to make sure that we're continuing to raise up uh, those folks and the struggle that continues because the waters are just now starting to recede in certain parts of South Carolina. And many of the environmental impacts are now coming to bear. There is a spotlight now being placed on them. Everything, of course, that we talked about in North Carolina, you know, from the hog farms and the coal ash uh, toxic ponds and these lagoons and all of those various things that are happening. So we hope that you all will continue to stay focused and make sure that you're giving to those organizations that are on the ground, mm-hmm. who have been on the ground before the storms, who are on the ground during the storms and who will be there afterwards so that you can help to build their capacity to be able to help them to not just be able to respond to these types of things, but to be able to rebuild. And then we also wanted to highlight for folks that we are now celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Respect My Vote campaign. For those of you who follow the Hip Hop Caucus and Antonique has been on the ride uh, for a long, long time, you know that we have registered. Let me say this number. Go grab your pens and then take a look at some of the other work that's happening out there. 600,000 people. Uh, to vote, to get engaged in the civic process. And as we're talking today on this show and all the other shows, and Kristen has also raised this for you all, it's so important for people to vote. We never tell you who to vote for, but we often say vote for somebody who cares about your community. So we're super excited about the 10-year anniversary and the new video that is about to drop tomorrow. So everybody go to hiphopcaucus.org. You will be amazed by all these cultural influencers uh, who are part of the work that has happened over the last 10 years and continue to today to make real change happen. So with that being said, we are going to get into the show. We've got incredible guests both in segment one and segment two. So don't you ever go nowhere. You're going to miss something <laughs> that's really going to make you upset. Um, and as we transition, uh, we have two incredible folks who are joining us from across the country now. You know, at the Environmental Protection Agency and inside of our current administration, lots of times there's information that has not been shared, uh, even when it is critical to the protection of our country. So we have Anthony Torres, who will be joining us. Anthony's with the Sierra Club. And then we also have my sister, Erica Vincent, who also is with the uh, Southern Equity 
um, organization. And just both of them are incredible. And they were a part of a climate uh, change work group, the first of its ever, first of its kind, that was led by youth leaders from across the country. Awesome. So with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to Kristen and Anthony and Erica. Are you on the line? Thanks so much for having us. Hi, Anthony and Erica. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Anthony, can you tell us a little about yourself and how you got involved in environmental and climate work? Absolutely. So I'm Anthony Torres. I grew up on Long Island, where I'm calling in from now. I got started uh, because I grew up in a place where climate change has already been happening. Mm-hmm. It's very apparent with sea level rise and, and more frequent storms. And we've seen that from Superstorm Sandy, where communities, including my own, were submerged. But politicians, whether they were in denial or not of climate change, still we're not doing enough. And so I got into organizing over six years ago to really make us, ourselves as young people and in communities make what needs to happen uh, possible. Fantastic. That's incredible, Anthony. Erica, how about you? How did you begin your journey? Hi, everybody. Thank you again. So my name is Erica Vincent. I work for a partnership for Southern Equity, and I have been involved in climate work for about, 10 years now, which is really crazy to say. Um, But I started doing this work while I was in college. So I went to Selman College and I sat out my school, of course. Um, And I was working on a bachelor's degree in women's studies. However, at the same time, extracurricularly, I was working for a student organization um, that actually was housed at Morehouse at the time called uh, SEED, which is Students Endeavoring for Enlightened Environmental Decisions. And really got bit by the bug at that point and really enjoyed a lot of the community work that we were doing, community education on climate change. Um, and we were working on uh, establishing this series of installs of the compact fluorescent light bulbs. Um, you know, in 2008, those were like the hot new thing. Um, and so we were installing those in people's households for free. And while we were in there, we were educating them on climate justice and wow. climate change. And it was really rewarding because we were able to get into people's homes and kind of provide a service that hopefully saved them money and also was helping putting a little bit in the environment and also using that as an educational opportunity. So low-income communities and communities of color that never would have heard about climate change at the time were getting all this kind of free education. So it was really rewarding, and I really got bit by the bug and have been doing this work in various capacities ever since. Um, so I'm excited to be here, but... Um, been a long road, longer than um, I think I often realize. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I know that's right. So you guys, um, you know, I know most folks around the country um, may not know a lot about this youth work group. But um, and you guys, you know, there was an all star cast that was pulled together. I was amazed with how many incredible, incredible young leaders from across the country were willing to invest their time. Uh, in this space and be able to, you know, educate uh, EPA and the administration on, on what's happening uh, in relationship to climate, uh, engaging better with youth, but also vulnerable communities. Can you guys just share a little bit about why you decided to invest your time in this youth work group? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really fitting to be on this call with and this show with you, Mustafa, because, you know, you mentioned we're at the EPA and helped charge our 
uh, first ever advisory group. And it was 16 of us, young people from across the country, from rural, urban, suburban areas in every region, and from really different backgrounds. We had a very substantial number of folks who we centered on the front lines, and then folks who were doing research, activism, and on policy work. And so we really pulled on that to create, after two years, a report. And so uh, for me, I mean, I really wanted to join. It was originally under the Obama administration, and even after that, to set the standard for what young people are uh, at the administration for what young people are demanding. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Erica, I'm going to ask you the same question, but be careful if you say my name because that might get you in trouble with the current administration. So, (laughs) (laughs) Erica, drop some knowledge on them about why you decided (laughs) to invest your time. I never said. I think that uh, really I wanted to be a part of something that was bigger than what I was doing. Um, So I was blessed to be working at a large nonprofit um, National Wildlife Federation. When I started working, um, started with the work group I was working at NWF, um, and I was really blessed and honored to be a part of. I was I worked for NWF for about six years, almost six years, and um, with that work, I was meeting a lot of young people that are doing some really great work in the environmental space, um, but felt like none of us were being heard on a national scale, kind of a collect as a collective voice. And so when I saw this opportunity, it was kind of serendipitous because um, I, you know, similar to other things in my life and other opportunities, I heard about this, I heard about this honor really from three different sources who hadn't spoken to each other, but thought, you know, Eric, you should really take a look at this and maybe join this, this, um, this group. And they, they hadn't had a conversation with each other about me joining, but they had all kind of emailed me, and so it was one of those divine things, like many other times in my life where I was like, okay, maybe I should really take a look and and join this group, and I would agree with you, Mustafa, we really did have a superstar cast, we couldn't have asked for a better group, Um, and so I was, I really wanted to be a part of it, because I wanted to help garner all the knowledge that all of the young people, everyone in our group um, are millennials, uh, all the young people that were doing this work uh, wanted to kind of garner and collect that knowledge um, and and really bull, put it on a bullhorn from a national scale. And a lot of the things, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about what's in the report, but a lot of the things that are in the report, we didn't have to go far to find that experience and to find that knowledge. It was right within our own work group. So that was really great. It made things a little easier. We didn't have to go far. Um, but also it was, it allowed us to learn a lot from uh, young people across the country who were doing similar things that we were doing, but also were able to make some big impact kind of in their own bubble. Um, and so to be able to elevate those voices and those experiences um, really is a priceless opportunity. So you're, you're talking about uh, the report that you guys put together. And I know that uh, this is one of the best kept secrets in Washington. And we're ready for you to spill the tea. Uh, Anthony, can you talk a little more about what the report is and what it found? Absolutely. And now that it's published and we're sharing it with our networks, it, this report uh, was originally tasked with uh, compiling the best practices of young people and the barriers to their involvement in climate policy making mm-hmm. in the country. And what we did is we actually, after our research phase and, and after, you know, two years, we said, you know what, we're going to honor the legacy 
of those before us who created the Hamed principles and the principles for environmental justice and came out of this report with three core recommendations and principles for youth engagement on climate change. That is, let frontline youth speak for themselves, which is, you know, prioritizing inclusive and community-based youth hiring practices for agencies, NGOs, and even a demand that, you know, 20% of the makeup of decision-making bodies and agency advisory groups across the government uh, be of made up of young people. Second, you know, we called for an investment in this rising leadership. Too often, young people, especially those on the front lines in most vulnerable communities, are not given or even see the resources that are at the table. And so we, you know, are urging uh, those who read our report that they abide by paying young people a living wage for their work and their labor and uh, having a willingness to learn and listen and be driven by the leadership of of our generation. And then lastly, it's to uplift the intergenerational collaboration that has been stemmed uh, by inequitable power dynamics like ageism, credentialism, and rather than competing or co-opting with successful youth work, actually working to uplift uh, and, and work together with young people, particularly women, low-income, and LGBT people of color who come from overburdened communities and who are really putting in and leading our movements to fight for not just ourselves, but the seventh generation to come. That's great. I, I, uh, that, those recommendations make so much sense when you think about, um, you know, who's most affected by climate change and the effects of climate change. And we look at our, our young people and our vulnerable communities. So centering those voices and empowering them just makes so much sense. Can you guys talk a little bit about the barriers you mentioned that your working group identified for young people, particularly from vulnerable communities to be heard in those climate policy spaces? A lot of the things that we really found from a barrier standpoint was some of the things that Anthony already talked about really ageism, credentialism, especially young people from lower-income communities who aren't necessarily set up to be the first line of defense that you hear or aren't necessarily, unless you have organizations that are willing to put them at the front of the line, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, um, no no pun intended, if you have organizations that are willing to set them up to be the first voice that you hear, um, a lot of the findings and the barriers that we found from uh, really, again, case studies within our own work group. There's a couple of organizations that our own work group members worked with, some of those organizations being your communities or margin, communities of color, marginalized communities, um, and really the, the, the knowledge that these youth already have living in these communities is the best way for us to learn how to hear from them. Um, and that's probably one of, you know, the knowledge, the experience that they're already living with um, on a day-to-day basis is the best way for us to make sure that their voices are heard is garnering that um, and deploying that knowledge um, into the communities that can raise awareness um, on the work that that they're doing and on the work they're trying to do and what they're experiencing all the time. Um, And also, you know, just barriers, again, I mean, we're talking about marginalized communities. We're really, in some instances, you know, from from Partnership for Southern Equity and the work I do, you know, racial equity is, we're a racial equity organization. That's what we do. Um, that's the work that we do. And we put it in different lenses, but really racial equity is at the core of it. And a lot of these organizations that are, communi- are in communities of color, 
um, or that are working from a racial standpoint or with a racial lens, first and foremost, are already going to be disenfranchised um, and not, you know, be, again, be the first voices that you hear, or the first voices that are that are uh, asked for their opinion, the first voices that are that are har- harnessed mm-hmm. um, with this knowledge. And so I think that um, the barriers that we found were really surrounding around the systems of oppression that we already live under. Um, and these isms, as Anthony um, eloquently put, uh, that we're already experiencing on a day-to-day basis, especially as youth of color. Okay. Well, let me ask this question to you, Erica, real quick. What do you hope is the impact of this report? You know, there are a lot of reports that that come through Washington, D.C. and in state houses. What do you hope is the impact? You know, that's a great question, Mustafa. And what we're hopeful, as Anthony said, you know, we... We started this work group under the Obama, Obama administration, and I think a lot of us were very hopeful in that administration, as we should have been. Um, and I think we have seen what is possible, but I think also what we've realized is that it does not, um, that doesn't mean that our work is complete, um, or it doesn't mean that we're done by any stretch of the word. Um, and so what I'm hoping from a climate change standpoint um, is that this report is something that is used by not only the federal government, but also large organizations that have the resources to do the work, um, is used to really put some work into their recruitment, put some work into their employment recruitment and look at, you know, who are the people that they are hiring and are they the people that have these different kinds of experiences than, you know, um, kind of your usual suspects, quote unquote, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that this report and this information that is housed in the report is used to as a piece of evidence to show that we can be doing a lot more if we're listening to the people that are in these communities again. And also if we're listening to, you know, young people are passionate, millennials are passionate, the, you know, generation underneath us, the centennials who are coming up, um, children that are people that are born, you know, post 20, excuse me, post 2000, um, they're already 18 and they're already passionate. We're already seeing a lot of really great work coming out of high school. Um, and so if we are serious about uh, making a change when it comes to climate change and climate justice, then we've got to look at the people that have the energy and are passionate about doing the work and have found that in their own experiences and then the education that they're learning in schools or through those experiences, um, that they can really make a change in their own communities and hopefully garner a change um, nationally and globally. Oh, Erica, you said something important. Um, you mentioned listening. So I'm going to ask the question to you. Do you feel that EPA <laughs> is actually listening when it comes to the impacts of climate change and environmental injustices that continue to happen? Yeah, that is a very good question that I want to have a very optimistic answer to. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I will say this, I think that the quote-unquote other side, um, uh, other side of the aisle, the proverbial other side of the aisle, um, is listening and paying attention more than we think. Um, I think that they are reading into and are have their ears open more than we think. And I say that because then 
the other side or the proverbial other side of the aisle, um, I think they are using uh, those, these findings, these recommendations, you know, the knowledge of the young people that I work with through, through this work group, such as Anthony and others. I think they're using all of that information that's now on, you know, publicly able for folks to see on the EPA website, in some ways using it against us or, or wanting to use it against us, finding, wanting to find a way um, to use it against us. So I will say that I think that they're listening. Now, are they listening with the best intent of really hearing and potentially adhering to those recommendations? Maybe not, but I do think that it's important for this recommend, these recommendations to go out because even if they're not listening to change in our favor, they're at least listening and hearing, and therefore the organizations and the people that do have the resources to do something about it or do have the resources to employ young people to do something about it um, can hopefully, you know, see this as um, a huge resource and a huge um, opportunity to really change the way they think about advancing the work of their organization. So do I think they're listening? I do think they're listening more than we would let on. Um, but maybe for the wrong reasons. And so we have to be ready um, and willing to really, you know, get the army of young people out there um, to do this work that's necessary. And I think you're kind of leaning on my next question here. So first, congratulations, absolutely congratulations to the youth work group for raising the voice of the next generation around this issue. Uh, now that you have passed the report onto the EPA, who is going to make some of these recommendations a reality? Yeah, I mean, uh, Hundred percent. Want to reinforce what Erica was mentioning, and also say that you know we're under no illusions that the Trumps, the Pruitts, or the Wheelers of the world uh, who are now running this administration, EPA, are gonna you know at all implement our our recommendations, or principles. And so it's on we, the people. It's on us as young people, as organizers, as scientists as people in the community, uh, to make them a reality. And so this report and our recommendations was not just to EPA, it was to the movement and speaking to those who uh, are working with young people or who want to partner uh, with our work. And so this is an opportunity, and we'll be calling on organizations, local and state governments, businesses, and others who are in this movement for climate justice to also sign on to these principles, read our report and best practices, and follow those principles for for youth engagement. So you can see uh, and find our report on social media, hashtag youth to EPA report, and and start and please reach out to Erica, myself, or or any of our task force members who are going to be carrying this work forward uh, and hope to partner with you on that journey. Well, most definitely. You guys, and for those folks who are out there listening to the show um, or who are checking it out on the podcast, I, I want to make sure that we highlight this, especially for all those reporters that continue to follow us and to, to ask those probing questions. We should be asking, why is it that this is the only youth-led climate work group ever uh, in the history of the federal government. And you also will be able to go and check out some of the things that we've been talking about here today and the report by going to think100.info uh, in the morning, and you'll be able to find information there and also guiding you uh, to the work group and the work group members. So we want to make sure that we highlight that for folks. But 
We need to make sure that there are more entities where young leaders uh, have an active voice and that voice is being honored. So all these other federal agencies should be creating uh, a, a situation uh, and tools um, so that young leaders have a voice in that process. And, and we're so, so extremely, extremely thankful to Anthony and Erica and the entire Climate Youth Work Group. We just want to say thank you to you for your service and making sure that EPA and the federal government can never, ever, ever say that they didn't know. And as my grandmother used to say, when you know better, do better. You are listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. And you just heard from Erica Vincent, extremely powerful sister, representing the Partnership for Southern Equity, and Anthony Torres. And they were highlighting for folks this very important report and recommendations uh, from young climate and environmental justice leaders uh, to our federal government. And we are now joined by Dr. Adrian Hollis, environmental and climate justice champion. And I do not say that lightly. She'll be throwing it down. She's also a board member on the Endangered Species Coalitions. And we are super blessed that we also have with us Lita Huta, Executive Director of the Endangered Species Coalition, welcome to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Oh, well, we're blessed. We're blessed to have you with us. Lita, we're going to kick it right off with you. Can you tell us a little about the Endangered Species Coalition and what it is doing to partner with different communities? Yes, thank you so much. Um, so we try to give a voice to wolves and grizzly bears and orca, everything down to rusty patch bumblebees and monarchs. Um, so they don't get to go in and talk to decision makers and ask for their own protections, right? So we try to give them that voice, and we also try to give different communities a voice. We know that people love endangered species. It doesn't really matter where they come from. Um, we've been polling on this issue for 10 years and you think this is like, you know, just this is, this is an issue for a small group of people and it isn't. It polls amazingly across the board, but it's not just what people care about, but it really matters to them. Um, it impacts their lives in a very real way. And I know we'll get into that. So we try to give communities uh, this voice. We try to make it easy for them to talk to decision makers. Uh, we reach out to environmental justice communities. I'll say we, we've, just scratching the surface. We have to do so much more there. Okay. Um, and faith communities and yeah. veteran communities and others. And uh, can I give you an example of what that looks like on yes, the ground? Yes, okay. yes, please do. So this story is a little bit sad, but um, you may have heard a little bit about it. There is this population of orca. They live along the coast, the Pacific coast. So they are along California, Oregon, Washington, and all the way up to Alaska. They spend a lot of time in Washington. And um, orca are really cool, and this population is very cool, and they're endangered. Um, orca are matriarchal, so they do what grandma says. They mm -hmm. learn uh, what to eat and how to eat and where to find it, and they, they listen to grandma's rules. And um, so this population is really particular. They really like salmon, and they really like Chinook salmon. That's what they like. Mm -hmm. um, and there are four Lower Snake River dams that are keeping the salmon from from going back and forth. Like salmon are an amazing, another amazing species. I won't get into it, but they're super cool, too. <laughs> okay. So, so right. orca, um, they have their own language, and they grieve, and they name their babies. So every baby has its own name. Um, and they come together, the pods come together, they have three pods, they celebrate when they see each other. So this summer in August, um, they haven't had a baby that survived in three years because they are starving. 
And wait a minute, wait a minute. Roll that back. Oh. There have for the last three years, the babies haven't been surviving. Right. Wow. Right. Um, because they're not getting the food, and they're also they're whales, so they have a lot of fat, which means that the toxins bioaccumulate in them. Mm-hmm. So this, and so we've been in lots of communities, and people have been trying to get attention to to the fact that we need to take down these dams, and we need to do it as soon as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hasn't been getting the intention that it needs. And this amazing mom, Taliqua, was a whale, is a whale. Um, her baby passed away. Her newborn passed away, mm. I think, within like 30 minutes. Mm. And she carried this baby around for 17 days. Um, and so the decision makers, in especially in Washington State, they couldn't, like, it was on, it was in the newspaper, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Every day it was yeah. like, is she still holding on to her baby? Mm-hmm. And people were just having this vigil for this amazing mom. And... From my perspective, she changed the conversation and she brought attention in a way that we couldn't. But um, we decided to hold a memorial for this baby. And in planning the memorial, we only had a few weeks, right, because, you know, we wanted the attention to stay on. We didn't want her grief to be lost, you know, to go in vain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were trying to quickly plan this memorial. And another baby died, a three-year-old, Scarlet, died. Right. Uh, let me say one other thing. Yeah. They think that she was born, she was a midwif birth, a midwife birth, okay. um, this baby, the three-year-old. They think she was a breech baby, and they think the other orcas helped pull her out. This is how cool this wow. population wow. is. So we had this memorial for both, and we, you know, we stayed very much in the background. We had many individuals from like nine different tribes mm-hmm. came, mm-hmm. and they spoke, and they chanted, and they sang, and it was really about them and their connection to the orca and the cultural significance mm-hmm. and um, the next day, there was a reporter who came. The next day, it was a really lengthy front page news article in the Seattle Times. You know, we weren't mentioned and we were thrilled. It was about the ORCA. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of the kind of thing that we do when we're partnering with communities, um, really, you know, just partnering with them, helping to lift them up and make sure their voices are heard. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, that's a, that's a great example of uh, where I'm going to go with my next question, Lita. So people across the globe, we're seeing significant changes happening to our environment, right? So what is happening with wildlife and plants around the world that we should be paying attention to? Well, so we are in what scientists would call the sixth mass extinction. Um, when this has happened before, it was like an asteroid hit the planet uh-huh. or it was a humongous volcanic eruption. Mm-hmm. This time it's humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are driving species to extinction um, in sort of massive ways. It, it's hard to even calculate because we are constantly discovering new species. They just discovered a new hummingbird in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're just constantly discovering new species. But we think that we have increased extinction rate somewhere from a thousand to ten thousand times higher. Wow. Um, wow. Than it should be, and mm-hmm. so uh, you know the the number of vertebrates and invertebrates and freshwater everything's just everything is going down. Freshwater mm-hmm. species, I think, has declined by like eighty one percent or something. Mm-hmm. So there's just massive declines, and at the same time, um, the political situation for animals and plants is pretty awful right now. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Hollis. Uh, we know you are a huge champion for environmental justice and climate justice and sustainability and renewable energy, and I could go on and on and on. <laughs> so, you know, this is a very um, important conversation that we're having here today because, you know, endangered species, sometimes people see that sort of in one silo. And, of course, we know that we at the Hip Hop Caucus are always trying to break down silos. And then we have the work that happens in vulnerable communities sometimes done in, in another silo. How, what is the intersection between this work? 
Right. This is a very good question. And the first thing people have to accept is that we're all in this fight together. Mm-hmm. We're just approaching it from different perspectives mm-hmm. and that you have to work outside the box with with organizations or entities or partnerships that you never thought about before. You remember when we uh, well, we weren't born, but um, when canaries were used in the coal mines. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes. if the canary died, you couldn't go down there because there was methane. And, you know, now we have a, a number of um, different activities that occur that are, you know, that are trying to wake us up to the issues, to the um, the issues surrounding climate. Uh, I want to tell you a quick story. I met a woman from the Navajo Nation, beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about climate change. We were at a meeting and she said um, the medicine men um, on her reservation um, usually use this particular herb when they are developing their medicinal, um, I guess, treatments. Um, and they can't find this herb anymore Uh-oh. because of climate oh, change. And they had to go off the reservation to look for this herb and it's been really hard to find and that is a perfect example of how climate change affects us culturally Mm -hmm. you know as well as i mean this is you know they need this medication Mm -hmm. um in order to um, help treat a variety of illnesses um another quick thing we've seen in the news these large mosquitoes that are have been present um after hurricane florence right yes then uh, there's a particular type of minnow that eats mosquito larvae. Hmm. Well, you know, if um, the pollution is going to cause this uh, decline in minnow, popu- minnow population, then we see an increase in these, I want to call them giant mosquitoes or monster <laughs> mosquitoes, whatever. You know, very general examples. But right. the point is, things that affect one species, one group affects us all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... Mm-hmm. For example, if you see if they're fish and they're swimming in contaminated waters and we eat the fish mm-hmm. or, you know, if we see fish that have and we've seen this tumors, then, you know, that the water is bad or there's some contaminant. So each one, um, each activity that occurs is uh, is a red flag, right, yeah. mm-hmm. for um, climate change, because we depend on species for, you know, unless if you're a vegetarian, you depend on um, the plants, you know, to mm-hmm. eat. If you're um, a meat eater, then you depend on um, some of the animals. And I apologize to those of you who are vegetarians when I say <laughs> that. But, you know, people need to think about that interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, Lita. I'm a big believer that our votes can make positive change, which you know we need right now. Uh, the Endangered Species Coalition has an innovative uh, voting initiative going on right now. Can you share with our listeners what it is and what you want to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um I think it was really surprising for us when we got into this. So we we sat around like, what are we going to do right now? And one of our staff people said, you know, nothing matters more than people voting. Like, that's the most important thing. And if you care about people and wildlife and we're all interconnected, you got to get people to vote. And so we decided we were going to work on this issue. And we are an organization that has member groups. We have maybe 300 member groups across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we said, yes, well, we're all in. Let's do this. And so we started doing um, – get out the vote efforts. We, we've given money to our member groups for them to do get out the vote efforts. We were really excited about Respect My Vote mm-hmm. and the resources you all have. And one of the things that we did was connect to um, your resources, mm-hmm. especially around educating people that even someone who has a felony conviction, they can vote. You know, That's there's right. some myths around say that. Say it again. Say it again. Right. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. And we were so excited that, you know, especially there, there are some great states, some are worse, but that you can vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started this initiative 
And it was sort of shocking to me, I think to all of our staff, that a lot of our groups who are 501c3s didn't think they could do this. They didn't think that they could um, encourage people to get out the vote. They thought that there are rules around that. And so a lot of our effort has been to try to get – right now we only have 18 out of our 300 groups participating because they're so – oh, some groups are doing it on their own. But, you know, there's a lot of fear. I don't know if you all saw mm-hmm. – Somebody, some journalist asked Trump, President Trump, about um, what is power, and he mm. said it's fear. Mm. And so I feel like that's oh, the time yeah. that we're in yeah. right now. It's just full of fear. And so part of what we're doing is just sort of breaking that down, mm-hmm. um, getting all these groups to participate and recognize there's, there's nothing more important than getting out the vote. And then we also want people to be educated. Um, we want people to go out and ask their candidates questions, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that's another thing. It, people are like, why is my question important? You know, am I really going to ask the senator a question and trying to trying to alleviate their fear and give them courage to ask those questions so that everybody can be educated in the room. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, this wouldn't be the coolest show on climate change <laughs> if we didn't ask you one of our favorite questions that we ask many of our guests. And I'm going to start with Dr. Hollis because I know she <laughs> bout it, bout it. So, Dr. Hollis, who are some of your favorite artists or favorite genre? But although I know you know some artists, so I, I, I'm coming to you first. Well, I was going to say my favorite artist is, well, he's dead now, but Marvin Gaye, um, his song Evolution. Okay. Um, I actually, I love that song so much. I, I developed a PowerPoint presentation that I always show people about because it talks about climate change. Right. It goes from the beginning to the end and not just climate change, all kinds of issues, right? And, uh, it talks about violence. It talks about, mm. um, you know, the family uh, connection. So that is my go-to song. When I hear that song, I get angry. Mm-hmm. I get angry because I think about how unfair things are mm-hmm. and how much we all need to be involved mm-hmm. to make it, you know, to make a change. Yeah. Same question to I you. I love that. Um, and I, I love the question because I think um, music is one thing that helps you get over the fear. And so mm-hmm. I'm totally about people having their own theme song. Uh, so for me personally, that's Mary J. Blige, Family <laughs> Affair. Um, but for our, our time and our staff, we've also been really, well, me maybe more than others, but into Sia's song, Unstoppable. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think like, those kinds of theme songs, power songs, power anthems are important. I like that. I like that. And moving forward, where do you see the Endangered Species Coalition going? You know, what if we look back here in a couple of years, what, what are some of the things you would like to be able to point to and say, wow, we knocked that out the park? Yeah. Um, so one of some of the things that we're focusing on, we've spent a lot of time just trying to defend the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. In my dream world, um, we get an administration and we get a Congress that, is not constantly trying to chip away at this act and we make some actual progress on species. I would love to see pollinators be healthy. I would love to see mm-hmm. very cool interconnected habitats and wildlife corridors all across the country. And so those are some of the proactive solutions we're working on. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mm-hmm. Hollis, same question for you. Yeah. I want to see more people enjoying, you know, just the outdoors. And, and I also, um, for the, for the endangered species coalition, when I know we've hit the mark is when I see, um, you know, even more diversity and I see that that's happening right now, you know, with, you know, we have, we have, um, representatives from a lot of our vulnerable populations, but when we're just all people fighting the same battle and it's not about, oh, we need to bring on someone from the Native American community because they can tell us about, how interconnected we are. We should all, once we all accept that, then that's when I know we've hit the mark, you know, and hopefully that will happen in the next couple of years. So. You can tell you've been mm-hmm. listening to Marvin Gaye. That sounds good. <laughs> I like the way that sounds right there. 
And I know if Reverend Yearwood was here with us this evening, everybody shout out to Rev. He's mm-hmm. uh, yes. holding it down in New York, doing the incredible work that he continues to do to, to not only motivate but to educate folks. You know, he, along with Antonique and Kristen and myself, we just want to thank you all so much for being on the show. Um, we want to continue to follow and, and invite you back to continue to talk about the work that the Endangered Species Coalition is continuing to do. So can you share with folks, uh, Lita, we'll start with you, about how folks can follow uh, your organization and, and how they can follow you possibly also? Sure. Um, so you can learn more about us on endangered.org. You can follow us on Twitter, also just at endangered. You can follow me on Twitter at Lita, L-E-D-A, Huta, H-U-T-A, um, yeah, from our website, you can find our Instagram and all those other things. Okay, fantastic. And Dr. Hollis, I, I know people will be seeing you on billboards and <laughs> all kinds of, kind of things. Can, can you shout out uh, real quickly for folks where, where they can find you? Yes, you can find me at EJToxicDoc um, on Twitter. Um, I'm not really on Facebook. Twitter is where I handle my business and talk about people. <laughs> Both of the things that we've discussed today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I'm probably on somebody's list right now. So I just want to say thank you to whoever that is. Well, all right, all right. Be careful the list you are. You know, I'm on a couple of them. <laughs> That's why they be looking at me funny at the airport. I'll be like, hold up now. What's really going on here? But again, we want to thank you all so much for being on the show. And before we close out, Kristen, because you are just incredible in so many different ways. You know the caucus loves you. We appreciate you being here. I just want to give a, a minute or so to you to talk about, you know, some of the work that you're continuing to do and some of the things that you need to highlight. Sure. So uh, I've been very focused on the Kavanaugh fight right now. Um, he's going to he's going to negatively impact our country in so many ways. So obviously I was very opposed to him even before all these sexual assault allegations came out. That said, um, while I believe we should be able to consider climate change uh, a bipartisan or a nonpartisan issue, um, sometimes people don't always see it this way. Uh, sexual assault, I think, right, is something that we can all definitely agree yes. should be not yes. a partisan issue. That's right. Um, so we've been doing a lot of work around that, uh, reaching out to senators um, who either do or don't want to hear from us in very vigorous ways. And uh, so I've been spending a lot of time in the Senate office buildings, uh, gotten arrested a number of times in the past few weeks. Uh, and I would say that if you're somebody who's invested in this fight um, and you have, you know, a couple, uh, you know, days to take off, personal days that you can take off, um, please come to D.C. Now is the time uh, to put your body on the line if ever there's a time. This is so so impactful, and there are organizations that will help um, fund your travel uh, and find you a place to stay if you go to cancelkavanaugh.org. So, um, you know, if you have a desire to have your voice heard in that way, now, now I think is the time to call that in. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I'd like to just once again thank all of our guests on the show today. Thank you to our listeners, and we most definitely have to thank our special co-host, the incredible Kristen Mink, for joining us today and for your advocacy for real change. Everyone, please remember that you have power unless Mm -hmm. you give it away. So don't give it away. Thanks for joining us this week on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, a hip-hop caucus platform. Let's keep this important dialogue going. Be a part of the conversation by following us on social media at Think100Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Visit our website at think100.info for blog content, information on upcoming events, or to connect with us. 
If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever podcasts are available so you'll never miss an episode. Rate and review us or simply tell a friend. Climate change impacts all of us. And if we think 100%, we can achieve a 100% sustainable and just world together. Think 100, think 100, think 100.